0: Today we start our new series, The Whole Truth. I wish more churches would have that moment of conviction and clarity that the pastor must have before he enters into the pulpit when he says, I agree to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. The reasoning behind this series is very important. It was the 17th century Baptist pastor, Hezekiah Harvey, who said it best. The modern pulpit, from its neglect of the Bible, is singularly narrow, exhibiting little of the vast wealth and variety of divine truth. It leaves by far the larger part of the Bible a concealed book. Its types, its poetry, its prophecies, its parables, its presentations. As in the epistle to the Romans of the truths of the gospel in their connection as one grand, comprehensive system of salvation... How little of all this wealth of Scripture is presented in the pulpit. I spoke about this briefly during our shift series, wherein we discussed the shift from a devotional understanding of God and the Scriptures to a contextual understanding. Since then, we have launched our B90X Bible study here at the church to help those who are interested in our congregation to get a more comprehensive understanding of what the Scriptures actually say. You will have read through the Bible in 90 days. The goal of this series, The Whole Truth, is, to, is going to be to help you to develop a comprehensive and consistent understanding of what the biblical message is, since this is where most, if not all, of the confusion in Christian theology and doctrine comes from. New believers will go to a church and receive half a Bible, yes, only the New Testament writings, lacking the context through which the New Testament comes. All sorts of issues arrive from this. So, far, so for the next couple weeks, I will be seeking to give you a challenge regarding the comprehensive story of the scriptures. Please write down your questions and thoughts as I preach, since there will be a short time toward the end that I will allow for a couple questions. Today, our topic is going to be, in the beginning, God created what? Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. In your pew Bibles, that is going to be page 1,131. I'm sorry, 1,132. And so it says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Proper biblical interpretation leads us to understand that through audience relevance, this passage is dealing with the present time, which was the time in which the Apostle Paul and the church in Rome were interacting around A.D. 57. We know that the glory that was about to be revealed in the saints at the coming of the Lord was the reality of Christ in them, Christ among them, the coming of the new Jerusalem in which God would be their God and they would be his people, and God would dwell among them. The reality we as Christians live in today. The first century was a time of transition. Notice Paul says in verse 22, Until now. I don't know of anyone who teaches that some physical creation was being changed by God in the first century unless you want to say the city of Jerusalem being destroyed, but that is not what the text is dealing with here. What is the creation that was groaning and waiting for the revelation of the sons of God? Oddly enough, there are some within Christian thought that believe that the creation being dealt with here is the geographic world. I have no idea why the rocks and mountains would be waiting anxiously for anything. Nevertheless, the revelation of the sons of God. Also, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. This is quite a ridiculous statement if it's talking about rocks and trees. How would they be willing? Where do we read about the creation being subjected to futility? Sounds like the fall that occurred in the Garden of Eden, right? As Bible teachers Whitcomb and Morris quoted in their book, The Genesis Flood, It was the time of the Edenic curse of Genesis chapter 3 verses 17 through 19 that the creation was subjected to vanity by God. Now that I set the stage for the time in which this was occurring, the first century, it is vital that we see what creation was being set free from its slavery to corruption. It has been said that if you get the beginning wrong, you will get the end wrong. We as a church that believes in fulfilled Bible prophecy believe that a large majority of Christian teachings regarding the end times have been misunderstood and are currently being reformed. We know that for the past 2,000 years, the church has walked in what has been called a misplaced hope, allowing the doctrines and creeds of men to lead the way, instead of properly contextually understanding the redemptive story of Scripture. We know that the end times were not a global event, but rather the end of the old covenant system which came to an end at the coming of the Lord in A.D. 70. Yes, the church has had its eschatological position, or its end times view, wrong. So what I propose to you this morning is the possibility that they have gotten the protology or the study of origins and the first things wrong as well. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to do some reading here. So we start in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters that which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, let the waters below and the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and he called the gathering of the waters, he called the seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, planting yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth. Excuse me. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser lights to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarmings, swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the sea, great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our own likeness. and Let us let make them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which is fruit yielding seed which shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given for every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that he had, all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth the day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. I imagine many of you read that and began thinking of planets, dinosaurs, and all the origins of the planet earth. I want you to consider this morning a quote by Bible scholar Milton Terry. In these opening chapters of Genesis, we are not to look for a historic narrative. Nor contributions to natural science, but to recognize a symbolic apocalypse of God's relation to the world and to man. Those that have read those that have read the entire Bible should be able to see an issue, and those of you participating in B90X will soon see it as well. What is being offered as an inconsistent storyline is that out of one thousand one hundred and seventy-nine chapters in the Bible, the first ten are dealing with physical creation. The rest of the story is about Israel and God's dealing with them. As Tammy Jelinek of New Covenant Ministries International said it best, the more I study Genesis creation, the more I realize just how much we are missing when we isolate it from the rest of the Bible. It is my agenda this morning to show you that the biblical beginnings are the beginning story of redemption, not the cosmos. The easiest way to make this point for you is to turn to Genesis chapter 1. And if you notice, when you turn one page forward, you read Old Testament. Testament means Covenant. Therefore, the beginning of the Bible is the beginning of the Old Covenant. Many people want to use the Bible as a scientific apologetic for the existence of God. Now, this can be alluded to through many references, but it is not the intent. The fact is the Bible was not written to atheists. Instead of forcing a meaning on the text that it was never meant to convey, we must seek to understand how it was read by the intended audience. When we read about the creation of Adam and Eve in the garden... Do we automatically posit them as the first people on the planet or the first people of the Old Covenant? As one rightly put it, there are two ways of looking at this parallel. You could say that Adam's story came first and then the Israelites just followed that pattern. But there's another way. Maybe Israel's history happened first and the Adamic story was written to reflect that history. In other words, the Adam story is really an Israel story placed in primeval time. It is not a story of human origins, but of Israel's origins. One writer said Israel would read the accounts of Adam and say that is our history. For example, Adam was created in Genesis chapter 2 after the taming of the chaos in Genesis chapter 1. Israel was created by God and underwent the exodus from the Red Sea. Adam was placed in a lush garden. Israel was given a land of milk and honey. Adam was given a law and disobeyed. Israel did the same with the Mosaic law. And finally, they were both removed from the land of promise where they lived because of their disobedience. When we begin to understand the old covenant starting in Genesis, the constructing universe language that is used in Genesis 1 and 2, demonstrating covenantal terms, we see an amazing story of God's redemption unfold. This is called covenant creationism. The curse that was placed on Adam in Genesis is removed in Revelation for all those who put on Christ. Christian theologians have continually recognized the connection between Genesis and Revelation. Author Craig Hill is noted as saying, although eschatology is technically about the end, most eschatologies are heavily dependent upon a doctrine of creation. The end will be as the beginning. As preterists, those who believe the end times occurred in AD 70 in the Middle East, we cannot afford to be inconsistent that the beginning of the Bible is about the creation of the world, but the end of the Bible is only about a small group of people. That just does not make sense sense. It was the German Old Testament scholar Otto Prosch who wrote, already in Genesis 1.1, the concept of the last days fills the mind of the reader. I imagine this is new to some of you here. I wish I could undo the damage that has been done by the erroneous teachings and explain the proper view in a half hour. I'm not going to be able to do that today. I can recommend many websites of information. The book Beyond Creation Science by Timothy Martin and Jeff Vaughn encourage you to continue to read the scriptures in context and invite you along this series for the next couple weeks to get the full comprehensive story, the whole truth. It is important that you know the two different theories on interpreting the creation account found in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The Concordus theory believes that the, Bible, the biblical account of creation when properly understood will be in agreement with the scientific accounts of natural history. Whereas the non-concordist theory believes that the details such as literary structure, analogy of scripture, comparison to other ancient Near Eastern texts and other details must be explored in the text. In contrast, the seeking in contrast, the seeking to understand the text in light of modern science. Much of scripture is allegorical. When we focus on the function of creative elements rather than the forms themselves, we are considering the time and similar styles of writings which John Walton illustrates very well in his book, The Lost World of Genesis, Chapter 1. For example, For example, in the Genesis account of creating the old heaven and old earth, there was a sea. Yet in the Revelation account of the new heaven and the new earth, there is no sea. Day and night exist in the old, there is no more night in the new. The new, the sun and moon are created in accordance with the heavens and earth. Whereas in the new, there is no need for the sun and the moon. There are are seasons in the old, no seasons in the new. The first heaven and first earth are under a curse. The new heavens and the new earth are redeemed. There is no more curse. In the old heavens and earth, man dies and returns to dust. And in the new, he is risen from the dust. Brian Mabadawa has recently written a few articles dealing with the covenantal interpretation of Genesis. In one article, he explains the following sentiment. Interpreting the creation story of Genesis and the expectation of the modern science the di- scientific discourse is hermeneutical violence. The notion of creation and existence in a biblical ancient Near East was not one of physics, life sciences, material substances, and structure. It was a story explaining the creation of the functions of the world remaining separating, and purpose. Quite the detailed way of saying that writings in the ancient Near East did not coincide with the way we read in the 21st century with the scientific glasses on. I must admit that I find it pretty simple to accept and understand the coming of creation in Genesis chapter 1.
1: When we read,
0: God created heaven and earth, we may be inclined to think of the physical heavens and earth. This is a failure to understand how these terms are used in Scripture. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 65. We'll be starting at verses 17 through 25. That's going to be on page 748 of your Pew Bible. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will be no longer heard the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be an, an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out the out days of days. For the youth will die at the age of one hundred, and one who does not reach the age of one hundred will be called a curse. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people, and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, or bear children in calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord, and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will raise together the lion and eat, straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all of my holy man, says the Lord. Where do you suppose Isaiah gets his understanding of heaven and earth? If heaven and earth would be literally destroyed, how would Jerusalem be a place of rejoicing? It's instead a proper biblical interpretation to audience relevancy, how the original audience understood this passage, an analogy of scripture when we seek to understand one passage by looking for understanding through other scriptures. By utilizing these two concepts, we will be able to see how the ancients understood heaven and earth. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, and starting at verse 30, and continuing into chapter 32, we read, Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were complete.
1: Who is Moses
0: speaking to? All the assembly of Israel. Now watch. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop out as rain, my speech is still as the dew. See the easy language that Moses is using? What did he call Israel? Heaven and earth. We see similar languages in God's blessing upon Abraham where he says that his children will be like the sand on the seashore, depicting land and earth. And he says that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, depicting heaven. If you recall Joseph's dream when he told his brothers that he made them jealous, he said, your sheaves gathered around to bow down to my sheaves which was understood as him saying that his brothers will bow down before him at one point one time. And then he continues about the dreaming, and he says the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bow down unto him. Using those terms to speak about his brothers and his family and Israel as well. So saying heaven and earth referring to people clearly isn't a far off concept in the scripture. At this point, I want to step down and answer some questions you may have. Okay, so, to end today's message, I want to clarify some things. I am not saying that it is not possible that there is more to the creation account in Genesis. There might be more than God simply making in covenant relationship with Israel that is written in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, but we cannot remove that. There are possible angles that I am missing, but to read really the account as a scientific explanation of the world and to force meanings into the text that is not there, is dishonest and damaging to the Christian testimony. The Bible gives us a story about how God created a covenant relationship with mankind. Adam and Eve being the first covenant people, which was later carried through the lineage of Seth. Next week, we will discuss the law God gave to Adam in the garden. Throughout the series, we will see how the flow of the redemption story is clear and consistent when, when taken in proper context. That's right. Heavenly Father, let us seek to understand the scriptures as they were understood by the ancients. Let us not interpret the Bible the way that we want it to be read, but instead seek the original meaning that you intended for us to understand. Let us be willing to demolish our paradigms, move forward in truth, proving all things, allowing the scriptural story to be consistent. He gave to explain our hope to people that ask us. Let us do this remembering your grace. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.